we have to learn to kind of accept the fact that deception is the price of being human. And we could build intelligent structures to limit the possibility of deception, but you can never... The only way to create a world that is good at detecting liars is to create a world that you don't actually want to live in. In September 2019, Malcolm Gladwell stepped on stage at Benaroya Hall as part of Sal's literary arts series. That night, he brought us into the complicated layers that underlie our most fraught and violent interactions. Like all of Gladwell's books, his storytelling is magnetic as he explores cases from Sandra Bland to Amanda Knox to unpack the multiple forces that affect who is believed, who is feared, who is blamed. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. You're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of talks from the world's best writers from 35 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. The LA Times called Talking to Strangers, quote, a compelling conversation-starting read, and it's a thoughtful and nuanced meditation on how we see others and how we see the world. Like all of Gladwell's work, brilliant storytelling and razor-sharp observations carry us to understand the world in new ways. Dubbed by the New York Times as the eclectic detective, Gladwell has invented his own genre of nonfiction, presenting thought-provoking investigations into the underworkings of culture. He is the New York Times bestselling author of The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, What the Dog Saw, David and Goliath, Talking to Strangers, and The Bomber Mafia. He is also the co-founder of the audiobook and podcast production company Pushkin Industries, and host of the podcasts Revisionist History and Broken Record. Following his 2019 talk, Gladwell was joined by Dr. Ed Taylor, Vice Provost and Dean of Undergraduate Academic Affairs at the University of Washington, and Professor in the College of Education, as the two discussed some of the most intriguing case studies in Gladwell's new book. This is Sal on Air. Thank you. It's a real pleasure uh, to be back in Seattle, I, uh, this lovely city. I, um, I, I went to Amazon today, and uh, I'm going to go to Microsoft tomorrow. Um, am I the only one who thinks it's kind of like the Bloods and the Crips? It's like... Both have, like, colors, hand signs, do people get in fights? Why? So I was curious about that. Like, you know, this somebody runs into someone else, and like, who are you with? Amazon. Um, I'm reminded of my favorite Bloods and Crips story, which is that when things were really getting out of control in LA, they had a there was a summit that was called by Quincy Jones, famous Quincy Jones, to try and bring peace to uh, to this gang warfare in LA, and he Quincy. Um, thought long and hard about who would be the appropriate moderator for the summit, the person to really kind of um, knock some sense into them. This is back in the early 2000s. And he, um, so he asked, this is my favorite thing, he asked Colin Powell to come. Do you know, do you know this story? It's an incredible story. <laughs> Colin Powell, who was then Secretary of State, flew to LA and he moderated the Crips Bloods Summit. Um, Colin Powell, by the way, my cousin, I don't know if you know that, he's my cousin. 
my, so my cousin went in. He, um, and there's an incredible story about how, remember Sugnight? Sugnight. Sugnight was like bad, bad, bad guy. He's now in jail for murdering somebody. He was like in the middle of all of this. And at one point he challenges, he's like six foot six. He challenges Colin Powell. And Colin Powell shut him up by saying, you know, I know you're a big deal in L.A., but I at one point commanded, you know, 200,000 troops and 200 nuclear weapons. I'm really not impressed with Blockbuster. <laughs> anyway, it's one of those things like, I just really wish I'd been there. Um, I went for a... I should be getting to the subject of what I'm talking about soon, but I went to... A, we, I had this podcast, Broken Record, and we, we interview music people, and we went to Quincy Jones' house to interview Quincy Jones, and he has pictures from the summit, like on his wall. It's like craziness. Anyway. Uh, so I'm very happy to be here and um, talk to you about my book, uh, Talking to Strangers, which has, um, the introduction made it sound like a real downer <laughs> with all of the nasty things I talk about. So, um, but I wanted to talk about one little idea in the book, which I think is sort of um, super interesting. And it's, a, it's about a, a paradox, a, a fundamental paradox of what it means to be um, a human being. And, the best way to describe this paradox is to tell you a story. And it's actually, weirdly, the book itself is structured around the case of Sandra Bland. It's the beginning and the end of the book. Um, but I, long before that happened, I had been kind of casting about for something to write a book about. And, um, I, had, and I should tell you, this is a, there's a long process. Before you write a book, there's a long process when you're just kind of wandering around trying to figure out what you're interested in. And one of the things I do when I'm doing that is that I read a lot of um, autobiographies, memoirs, because I think they're incredibly useful. But not all memoirs are useful. In fact, I have a kind of conceptual way of thinking about memoirs. If you think of two axes, and the first axis is, this is boring and this is interesting. <laughs> and then the second axis is, this is constrained, and this is unconstrained. So you can be, have a super interesting life, like you're president. But if you're the president, you write your memoirs, you're constrained. Because you can't tell any of the best stories, right? They're classified, they're, they involve, you have ongoing relationships with people, there's all kinds of... So you don't actually want to read the president's memoir. It's never as interesting as you think. <laughs> At the same time, there are people who are completely unconstrained. They're not they were never president. They're like, they weren't famous. They're not, they can say whatever they want, but they tend to have lives that are not interesting. And so they're, <laughs> they're in the other quadrant. And you don't want to read those either. What you really want to do is you want to read books that fall in the intersection of these two, of these two continuum. Um, you want a book that is by someone who's famous enough that their life is interesting, but not so famous that they can't say what they're talking about. Um, and I discovered that, after thinking about this, that the books that most often fell into this category were books by retired, mid-level career bureaucrats. <laughs> in, particular, in particular, books by former members of the CIA. Because it turns out, turns out that it's almost impossible, it seems, to retire from the CIA in a middling position and not write a memoir. There are vast numbers of memoirs by ex-CIA guys. And once I, and I don't think anyone particularly reads them, interestingly, but I did. I, I did. I, when I was, I got really into them. I, 
I, I acquired them by the truckload. And I remember reading one by, a really good one, by the guy who used to be the general counsel of the CIA. Now, I've just proved my point. You all know what the CIA is. It's a place that's super interesting. Can you name a general counsel of the CIA? No, you can't, right? You have no idea what that is. Totally obscure. But that guy, he's unconstrained. Unlike page 56 or something, when I was reading, I was like, I read this, he tells this story about this spy they had way up high in some Middle Eastern terrorist group who was betrayed by the New York Times. It's like, insane story. It's like, I'd never heard it before. It's like, I can't believe this. And of course, no one read the book except for me. So I'm the only one <laughs> who knew the story. So I got really into it. I actually got a podcast episode out of it. Um, so then I got really into it. And I read another one by this guy named Brian Littell. It was super interesting. Brian Littell used to run the CIA's Latin America desk. And he tells this incredible story involving two people, one called the mountain climber and one called Florentino Aspiaga. And I read this thing, and I was like, oh, my God. And so I called up Brian Littell, and I went to see him. And he lives in Miami. Very charming, erudite man. Ex-CIA officers, by the way, are a very impressive bunch. They're not, they're not idiots. And so I'm talking to Brian Littell, and I was like, I'm here because I, you tell this incredible story about this guy called the mountain climber and Florentino Aspiaga. I want, you, can you, I want to know more. I mean, you clearly were holding back. It's like, well, he goes, I, I, I can't tell you anymore. It's like, well, tell me more about the mountain climber. He's like, that's fine. Right? If you want to hear more about the mountain climber, you're going to have to find the mountain climber. I was like, well, where is the mountain climber? He says, I can't, I can't tell you. <laughs> so this is like in 20, this is years ago. And so I became obsessed with finding the mountain climber. Um, and I'm not a very good... Uh, investigative reporter. I'm, if you meet investigative reporters, you'll know why. They're, you have to be sort of obsessive. I'm not obsessive. Um, so it was very hard for me, but I got obsessed with this. And I spent a year and a half trying to find a mountain climber. And I was like, you know, searching high and low and leaving all kinds of messages and talking to people. And one day I got a phone call and it you know how sometimes you get a phone call and it says unknown number, right? Well, there's a level above unknown number, <laughs> which is when someone's calling you from like a black site or something like that. And in, this is a tangent, another tangent. And I'm about to name drop in the most epic way, just so you're prepared. <laughs> One time, a couple years ago, I looked at my phone and it was a phone call and it was that layer above unknown number. It was like gibberish. It's like, and I'd never seen this before. And I was like, oh my God, like, this is incredible. Like, so I answer the phone and I hear Malcolm Gladwell. I go, yes, Barack Obama. <laughs> so now there was the normal thing of like, it's not Barack Obama. It's like, <laughs> when he said, and finally, I realized it probably was. I was like, Mr. President, just call me Barack. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go into that. It's a separate thing. Maybe later. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so now I know about the level above unknown number, right? I know this. So a week passes, and I look at my phone, and it's the same thing. Same weird thing. And I'm thinking, 
Brock's calling me again. <laughs> so <laughs> I like answer the phone. And I hear Malcolm Gladwell. It's like, it's like, yeah, different voice. It's like, I hear you've been looking for me. <laughs> it's the mountain climber. Now, who's the mountain climber? The mountain climber uh, was, in his day, the he was the greatest CIA operative out there. He was a legend. He was like, I mean, he, was, he began his career in Eastern Europe, in Russia, and he spoke Russian like a Russian, and his trade craft was impeccable. And he was, he was the CIA field operative that everybody looked up to. And there's a famous story, true, that the KGB, in a KGB school, this, when the Soviets were training their spies, they taught a course on the mountain climber. That's how good the mountain climber was. Another story, perhaps apocryphal, I have no idea, was once the mountain climber's in Moscow and he sits down at some restaurant and these two guys sit next to him and they're both KGB agents and they have suitcases and they put them on the table and they open up and it's just cash. And they're like, please come and work for us. And the mountain climber, of course, is incorruptible. So he tells them to get lost. He can't be bought. Like, anyway, he's like this legend and he gets promoted to run the CIA operations in Havana. Now, that doesn't sound like a promotion, but it is, because <laughs> Havana is the back door to all the bad guys. The Cubans, you know, were connected to every one of our enemies in the world. So if you cracked Cuba, you actually had a window into everything that nasty that's happening in the world. So it's a really, really important post. And so the mountain climber goes there, and he rebuilds the spy network, and he reinvigorates it, and he motivates everyone, and he brings in all this extraordinary intelligence, and it's a... It's a extraordinary performance and the Cubans are in awe of him and he gets promoted to Langley and to some big job and he's at Langley and one day he gets a phone call and the phone call says uh, you need to come to Frankfurt right away so he flies to Frankfurt and he walks into CIA has a special debriefing center at an army uh, base in Frankfurt and he walks into the safe house and he meets a guy called Florentino Aspiaga. Okay, who is Florentino Aspiaga? Florentino Aspiaga is the Cuban version of the mountain climber. He is this legend. He's like one of their stars. He was way up high in the Cuban intelligence service. He, had, he was handsome. He was suave. He was like this amazing kind of uh, brilliant character. And he gets promoted to run the Cuban operations, spying operations in Eastern Europe. This is in the late 80s, before the wall falls. And, but Florentino began, began to get disillusioned with Castro. And he decides he wants to defect. So one day, he has a girlfriend named Marta. And Marta is also Cuban, but she's lower level, so they took away her passport. So he, he's like his, this, this government-issued Mazda, and he meets Marta in a park in Bratislava one Saturday afternoon, and he puts her in the trunk. It's got a very strong relationship, clearly. Um, <laughs> drives to the border with Vienna. Remember, it's the Cold War. Still got the Iron Curtain. Talks his way through, goes directly to the uh, American embassy, and knocks on the door and says, I am Florentino Espiaga. I'm a, you know, I'm a colonel in the Cuban intelligence service. And they're like, Whoa, right? In spy terms, that's called a walk-in. And walk-ins 
are like the God's gift. It's when one of your enemies walks in the front door and says, I got a story to tell. You're like, you could not be happier. And so they immediately fly him to Frankfurt to the CIA debriefing center. And when they gets there, they say, are you now prepared to talk? He says, absolutely. But on one condition, I will only tell my story to one person, the mountain climber, right? El Alpinista. And so that's why they call in the mountain climber. So the mountain climber shows up. And actually, I misspoke. He doesn't meet Florentino Aspiaga right away because Florentino is like in a back room having sex with his girlfriend. That's how he rolls, right? <laughs> He's like, shows up and like grabs his girl and is like in the back. So they gather, they gather him out from there. And the two men, I mean, it's a meeting of like these two legendary figures, the mountain climb, El Alpinista and Florentino Espiaga, like these two suave, brilliant, debonair guys. And they like, they hug Cuban style and they kiss on both cheeks and they sit down. And the mountain climber always goes by the book. It's one of his things. He's like, and the book says that when you meet with a walk-in, the first thing you have to do is to establish their bona fides to make sure they are who they say they are. So they have, you have to have them tell you something that makes you realize that they're for real. So the mountain climber says to Florentino, he's like, tell me something that makes me realize that you're real, makes me know that you're real. And Florentino says, okay. When you were in Havana, you had a source high up in the Cuban Ministry of Defense named Raul. I'm making that name up. I don't know exactly. And Mount Carmen says, that's correct. And Florentino says, and this source, Raul, was, gave you access to many of the most secret documents in the Cuban Ministry of Defense. Mount Carmen says, yes. And then Florentino says, Raul was working for us, double agent. The whole stuff, all he was doing was feeding you, you know, stuff we wanted you to see that was totally phony. And the mountain climber is like, floored by this. Raul was his guy, right? I mean, we, he relied on Raul. Raul gave us what we thought were the, the keys to the kingdom, and now he suddenly discovered the whole time he'd been duped by Raul. And he's like reeling. And then Florentino says, I'm not done. You had a source inside the Cuban Air Force, right? A general in the Air Force who gave you a complete picture of all of the air defenses of Cuba. And Mount Glamour says, yeah, I did. And Florentino says, that general? Working for us the whole time. Double agent, run by Castro. And at this point, you know, the mountain climber cannot believe what he's hearing. I mean, this is like a, a, a spy's worst nightmare. Two of his most important sources now have been revealed to be traitors. I mean, everything he was doing, he did in Havana is crumbling before his eyes. And then Florentino says, wait, I'm not done. <laughs> you had someone who was on uh, Fidel Castro's personal staff who would go to Fidel Castro's desk and take pictures of his personal effects and send them straight back to Lanley, right? And like, Mount Glamour knows what's coming. He goes, yeah, I did. And Florentino says, he was working for us the whole time. And now, the mountain climber, has, he's lost the capacity for speech. I mean, he's in such a state of shock. And then Florentino says, I'm not done. And he names a fourth guy and says he was working for us. And a fifth spy and says he's working for us. And he kept going and kept going until he had named 48 spies. The entire network put together by the mountain climber, every single one of them was a, was a double agent working for Castro. And at this point, the, 
the mountain climber is like on the floor. I mean, he, he's like had a stroke. He has to be carried out by medics, and they immediately fly to Langley, and they tell the same story to the higher ups, to the head of the CIA, and it's the most, one of the most devastating embarrassments that the CIA has ever faced. I mean, we thought we had a backdoor window into all of our, all of our enemies in the world, and virtually everything we learned over that many, many year period was a lie fed to us by Fidel Castro himself. Right? It, got, it gets worse. Castro hears that Florentino Aspiaga has defected, and so what does he do? He takes all the 48 spies and he takes them on a whistle-stop tour of Cuba, and they have like big, like you know, uh, open-air celebrations. And he brings people are playing music, and they come out on stage and they wave and they tell hilarious stories about the time they pulled the wool over on the Americans. Like it's deeply embarrassing. And then Cuba, uh, Fidel Castro releases a documentary on Cuban television in like 10 parts. It's like Ken Burns. <laughs> Only the whole thing is just a documentary about how everything he has, what they realize is that Castro has filmed everything the CIA operatives and their agents were doing in Cuba over the previous, whatever it was, five or six years. And the most incredible thing is, I was talking to someone about this and they were like, you have to understand, the most embarrassing thing was that the sound quality was so good that you realized that every room that CIA operatives were conducting their clandestine meetings in must have, the Cubans must have known that fact in advance and gone in with their professional sound people and wired it so well so they would have like, you know, Dolby quality sound when they were doing their documentary. The thing is humiliating, right? Totally humiliating. Now, think about this. The fact that someone is fooled is not unusual. We're fooled all the time. So one response to this might be, okay, so what? But think about this for a moment. There are a couple things that are unusual about this story that I've just told. The first thing is that we generally think when someone is deceived like that, that the, the dupe is someone who is in some way vulnerable to deception. They are unsophisticated, they're an elderly shut-in, they're someone who is, you know, impaired in some way. They're an easy mark, right? That's the, they're the kind of person who gets the email from Nigeria and really does think that they have $10 million, right? That's our narrative about who gets fooled, that, you know, well, in this case, that's not true. This is the CIA. This is the most sophisticated intelligence service in the world. These are people, by the way, and not only that, these are people who expect to be deceived, right? They know that their enemies are trying to deceive them. It's the furthest thing from the naive little old lady in Iowa who, you know, picks up her phone and is convinced it's the IRS on the other end of the line. Not only that, it's the mountain climber. It's the best guy they had. The, the cream of the crop. The king of everything. He's the guy who gets fooled by the, the Cubans. So right away, this reverses our expectation of how deception happens. Second thing. Normally, when we think of deception, we think of it as being a one-off, right? You take your car to, the, to some auto shop and they charge you $500 and they don't fix the problem. You realize you were cheated, right? They just mailed it in. So do you go back there? No, you don't. You never go back there, right? You go on to someone that you find someone who's more reputable. You get deceived and then you respond by changing your behavior, right? It's a one-off. 
is this a one-off? No, it's not a one-off. This goes on and on and on for years and years and years, and it's not one deception, it's 48 deceptions. Everyone is fooling the CIA, not just one person or two people. Third thing that's weird. Um, normally when we think of deception, we say not only is the victim somehow vulnerable, but the deceiver is somehow brilliant, an evil genius, right? And in all spy novels, and I read a jillion spy novels, in the spy novel, the villain who pulls the wool over everyone's eyes is always possessed of some kind of quiet, diabolical intelligence that allows them to do this. And we say when we get fooled by this person, like, well, guy's a genius. What was I going to do, right? I mean... So were these people, were the Cubans geniuses? Well, I don't think so. There's no evidence they were. I mean, were there really 48 evil geniuses in Cuba? In, I don't think so. It's a lot of evil geniuses for a small country, right? There's no evidence that they were somehow really good at what they were doing. And in fact, when you look at spies, overwhelmingly what you see is they're not evil geniuses, even the greatest of spies. I mean, I have another story in a book about another Cuban spy. There's a lot of spy stories in the book, called Anamantes. Anamantes rises to the very top of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the counterpart to the CIA. And the entire time, she's working for Castro. The entire, from the moment she started to the moment she was busted. And, she, you know, everything. She goes home every night and communicates with her handlers back in Havana. Every single night. And uh, probably one of the most damaging spies of the 20th century. But is Anamantes some kind of genius? Um, when they finally bust her, like 12 years or something after she started there, they find the codes that she used to communicate with Havana in her purse. <laughs> it's like, do you have all your internet passwords like in a, on a piece of paper in your wallet? Like, <laughs> like is that like why I, I like to have them on me at all times in case I'm, you know, in case I need to get into my Citibank account. I think it's useful to have it written down on a piece of paper. No, it's craziness to put it in your purse. And then when they actually, they go and they search her apartment, you know where they find the radio that she uses to communicate with Havana? In a shoebox in her closet. <laughs> a shoebox? Like, you're a spy. You're deep inside the DIA. You're communicating on a daily basis with one of America's enemies using a radio, which you keep in like a, you know, a Cole Hahn box. <laughs> where do you think, when they broke into her apartment to like do the search, where do you think the first place they looked was? Do you think they're like, well, maybe under the bed. Maybe that was the first one. Like, how dumb is she? Could it be under the bed? And then they're like, well, I don't know, maybe the closet. And they're like, maybe it's in the shoebox. And they must have just, I don't know, died laughing? I don't know what they do when you find it. <laughs> so my point is, this is not a brilliant woman. Right? And the only person who was a worse spy was Aldrich James. Aldrich James literally gave away the store. He was way up at the CIA, working for the Soviets for years. And he gets into, first of all, Aldrich James was a drunk, and he was really bad at his job, really bad. He got like, the worst performance reviews. Nonetheless, kept getting promoted. That's a separate <laughs> issue. He gets in debt, starts to work for the Soviets. They start giving him a lot of cash, a lot of cash. What does he do with his cash? He starts spending it wildly, buys like a fancy Jaguar, dresses in like Brioni suits, 
And here's my favorite thing. All of the accounts of Aldrich James's life post uh, spying for the Soviets mentioned that he had got his teeth capped as if that was the clincher. <laughs> so he's suddenly showing up in like an XJ-12 and wearing like Ferragamo loafers and like he's a G7 at the CIA. You know, he's like, no one raises an eye. I don't know, like Aldrich looks, looks like he's pretty flush. But the thing they can't like pro quite process is suddenly his teeth are shiny and even. <laughs> is the CIA a place full of people with like crooked teeth? Is that what it is? I, or is that, I mean, I don't know. It's just the weirdest thing. But like no one, here's a guy, he's like, I'm getting a hundred grand a month now from the Soviets. I'm just going to spend it. I don't care if anyone, like these guys are not smart. And yet Aldrich Ames manages to pull the wool over the CIA's eyes for years. Add these three things together, and you have a very, very different narrative about deception, how deception works, right? A lot of our ideas don't seem to hold up. Now, you might say, Malcolm, you've just been talking about spies. Maybe people in the espionage world are particularly naive. Maybe the rest of us <laughs> don't operate the same way. All right, well, let's talk about something outside of the world of spying. A big chapter on Bernie Madoff. Very interested in the Madoff case. Who is Bernie Madoff? Well, he was someone who ran a $40 billion Ponzi scheme. Who did he, uh, who were the people that he built? Who were the people he fooled? Were they little old ladies? No. Was my mom, who was a little old lady, fooled by Bernie Madoff? No. She didn't send her checks to him? No. I'm not, now, my mom is not really disparaging my mother. She's not a terribly sophisticated investor. We always joke that my mom's reaction to a dollar amount is the same regardless of whether you add or subtract a zero. <laughs> we have, my brother and I have actually tested this theory on her. So you can say, Mom, I made $10,000 last year. And she will say, Malcolm, that's so wonderful. But you can also say, Mom, I made 100000 Or you can even say, Mom, I made a million. And she would have the same response. That is just so, I'm so happy for you, Malcolm. <laughs> but anyway, so my mom, you might think my mom is the kind of person who's going to get taken by Madoff, right? She doesn't know. She calls me, she lives in Canada, calls me to ask me how much money is in her bank account. How do I know? <laughs> it's like, Mom, <laughs> thing called an ATM card. It's very easy. No, who gets fooled by Madoff? Not Joyce Gladwell. Billionaires and brilliant entrepreneurs and serious businessmen and people with millions of, I mean, the most sophisticated investors are the ones who get fooled by Bernie Madoff. There's an incredible story. In preparation for this book, I read the SEC report on the Madoff case, which is like 900 pages. Not something I would recommend <laughs> anyone else doing unless you're like incarcerated or something and you have a lot of time on your hands. But um, in a footnote, by the way, this is the weird thing about government reports. I have read a lot of them, so I've... Normally, when you write something, you have the interesting stuff in the text, and you have digressions in the footnotes. But the footnotes are not more interesting. They're not interesting digressions, because you put those in the text. They're like, if you want to nerd out, and you want to like, pursue this point past the point of marginal returns, <laughs> I'll have a footnote, and I'll let you indulge your curiosity. Right? That's normal human behavior. In government reports, it's flipped. 
So that the boring stuff is in the text, but the, the footnotes are gold. So it, a, a really logical way to read a government report is just to read the footnotes. Just skip the text. Just go from footnote to footnote. So on page like 798 of the SEC report, in the footnotes, there's this incredible story. It involves Renaissance Technologies, which uh, some of you will know is the world's greatest ever hedge fund, founded by a, guy, a bunch of guys who are all PhDs in language prize, some incredible artificial something, something. Um, and they all were working at IBM, and they were too smart for IBM, just to give you a sense of how smart these guys are. So they leave IBM, and they started an investment company, a hedge fund, in like the 70s, I think. And they've made, I mean, I think they average like 25% returns every year since. They're geniuses. And they discover at some point, years before Madoff is busted, they discover that uh, they have a $30 million stake in one of Madoff's funds. And they're really smart. And so they're like looking at Madoff, like, who is this guy? And they look at his stuff and they're like, this doesn't seem to make any sense what he's doing. We understand it. All kinds of red flags. And they have a whole email exchange, which the SEC years later finds, in which they discuss like how like weird Madoff is, they don't really trust him, blah, blah, blah. Do they sell their stake in Madoff? No. They hang on to it. Right? The smartest guys in the world. Meanwhile, the SEC is sending people on a regular basis to Madoff to investigate these kind of rumors that the man is like doing something funny. And they literally go in to Madoff, and these smart people, SEC's not full of dumb people, smart people, go in there, and they sit across from Madoff, and they say, Bernie, uh, we've noticed that uh, you, the explanation that you give for your investing strategy makes no sense, and that we've also noticed that your returns are, you return 15% every year, regardless of what happens in the market, which seems strange. Uh, how do you account for this? And Bernie's like, eh, I'm really good. And they're like, they go back to headquarters. We asked him and he said he was really good. <laughs> Literally, I am not making that up. That is exactly what happened, right? So, condition number one, just like in the CIA, really smart people taken in by him. Two, does it happen once? No, it happens. He does this for 20 years, right? Over and over and over and over again. Bernie gets people to give him very, very large piles of cash, and then he just does, he just perpetuates his fraud. Condition number three. Does, is Bernie some evil genius? No. Bernie's guy, like, he is a pretty good actor. He will say, if you ask him if what he's doing is nonsense, he'll look at you with a straight face and say, I'm uh, just really good. One time he actually used... He actually uses the phrase that he, uh, he could really see around corners in a way that... Like, it's not genius behavior to give lame explanations. Do you know who his accountant was? His accountant was like an 85-year-old guy running a solo operation out of a strip mall in Rockland County. Now, for those of you who don't know Rockland County, from New York City, you can go in a number of directions where you will reliably run into really, really sophisticated people. Rockland County is not one of those directions. <laughs> I don't mean to not being snobby. I'm just telling you like it is. If you're an investor and you're interested in establishing the bona fides of the person you're giving all your money to, there are a number of red flags here. The accountant is 85. 
He's running a solo op. The accountant, by the way, for a $50 billion hedge fund is a 85-year-old guy named, like, Joe something. <laughs> Office is in a strip mall, a solo operation in Rockland County. Right? Now, if you are Bernie and you would like to perpetuate this Ponzi scheme, you'd think you'd come up with a better story than that, right? You would make the guy move somewhere more reputable. You might want him to add some staff. I mean, there's all kinds of things. You, Bernie doesn't do that. Why? Because Bernie's not the brightest bulb in the store. He's not. He's not an evil genius. This is not like, we're not talking about like Einstein here. It's the same pattern that we've seen over and over again, that to deceive somebody does not require anyone to be some kind of massive genius, right? Sometimes it's enough just to be the person who, uh, who just is kind of brazen and just kind of flies to people's face. Now, I've given you some slightly absurd examples, but there are tons of other ones that are quite heartbreaking. I mean, remember the Larry Nasser case at Michigan State, um, where this, the team doctor for the U.S. gymnastics team is this guy, Larry Nasser, who for years and years and years and years is using his position as a team doctor to sexually abuse young girls who are on the team. And he would conduct this sexual abuse sometimes in his examining room while the parents of the gymnasts were in the room. Right? And here's one mother. This is, I, this is one of the mothers of one of the gymnasts who is herself a medical doctor who is describing the experience she once had sitting and watching her daughter be treated by Larry Nasser. And I remember out of the corner of my eyes seeing what looked to be potentially an erection. And I just remember thinking, that's weird. That's really weird. Poor guy. Thinking like that would be a very strange thing for a physician to get an erection in a patient's room while giving her an exam. But at the time when you're in the room and he's doing this procedure, you just think he's being a good doctor and doing his best for your child. She's a medical doctor. She's sophisticated. She's not a bad parent. She's not a negligent parent. She's not an uncaring parent. She's not complicit in some way in his crime. She's just someone who is right there in the room seeing this happen, and yet somehow it's not, she's not comprehending it, right? It's the same pattern of behavior that I've been talking about. Deceit is in front of you, and you can't make sense of it. it Larry Nasser was not, people didn't finally realize who Larry Nasser was until the cops found his hard drive in a garbage can, and they looked on the hard drive and they found 37,000 child porn images. And they're like, oh, right? He's a bad guy. So who's he fooling? Everyone. How long is it going on? For years, over and over again. Is he some evil genius? No, he's an ev not an evil genius. He's a guy who has 37,000 child porn images on his hard drive that are there for anyone who wants to find them should he get investigated. So what do we make of this, right? This is a very troubling reassessment of our narratives about deception. Well, the, um, I spend a lot of time on this question in my book, and I end up using a lot of the ideas of a guy named Tim Levine, who's a very brilliant researcher at University of Alabama. And he's someone who, like a lot of psychologists, has struggled for a long time with this strange fact about human beings, that we are really easily deceived. Um, the classic experiment in psychology, which has been done countless times, is I could bring 100 people out on stage, 
and each of them would say something, and some of them would be lying, and some of them would be telling the truth. And if I asked all of you in this room, spot the liars, the accuracy rate in this room would be somewhere between 52 and 54 percent, slightly better than chance. You might think you were good at spotting the liars. You would not be good at spotting the liars, right? This is something that has been shown to be true time and time again in one context after another. And the question is why, right? It doesn't make any sense. You would think that evolution would have selected us to be good at detecting deception. That's a really, really useful human trait, right? Um, and Levine's answer is that it,、uh, evolution has not selected us for that. Evolution has, in fact, selected us for the uh, uh, for the willingness, for the for the ability to implicitly trust other people. What he calls default to truth. That we evolved in very, very small groups, and in those kinds of situations, it was possible, necessary to trust other people, and that's what we were. That's what we evolved to do: to give people the benefit of the doubt. And to change our mind and suspect them of wrongdoing only when the evidence got overwhelming. Now, is that a problematic fact about human beings? Is this something that we should seek to change or alter in some way? Because you can see the consequences. What this means is that we are we fall prey to the Larry Nassers and the Bernie Madoffs and the、uh, Fidel Castros of the world. But here is where. Here is where the book, I think, one of the main points of the book,、um, becomes relevant, and that is that I'm not convinced that is a bad thing about us.、Um, I'm not convinced that we want to be the kinds of people who abandon、uh, default to truth. So, for example, in the case of Madoff, there is someone who, one person who sees through Madoff, Harry Markopoulos, who was a、uh, worked for a hedge fund in Boston, and was asked by his bosses to duplicate. Madoff's returns—they were so amazing. They said, "Well, why can't we do that? Just find out what he's doing and copy it." And so Markopoulos conducts an investigation of Madoff and concludes that there is no way, humanly possible, that Madoff can be doing something legit, and becomes immediately convinced that Madoff is running a Ponzi scheme. And Markopoulos then goes to the SEC office in Boston, where he is, and says he's running a Ponzi scheme. And they like now. Then he goes to New York, and they're like, "Well, we went to see him, and he said he could look around corners." And <laughs> And then Madoff goes to D.C. Same thing; they won't listen. Four times over the course of nine years, Markopoulos goes and tries to alert people that Mar- Madoff is up to no good, and each time comes up empty. And if you remember that famous hearing after Madoff turns himself in, remember he was not caught. Turned himself in four times、uh, at the hearing. There's a big hearing after he turns himself in, and the hero of the hearing is Markopoulos, and he gives this riveting testimony in which he describes. Guys, I told, I tried to tell you this four times over the last ten years. He wouldn't listen, right? And he, you know, it's this incredibly dramatic moment, and all these senators like are like, "Oh my God! If only you ran the SEC!" And blah, blah. <laughs> do we really want Harry Markopoulos running the SEC? Well, if you dig a little deeper into Harry Markopoulos, you realize he's a total weirdo, right? <laughs> There's a reason why he suspects. He's so quick to suspect. Bernie Madoff, because he's quick to suspect everyone. That's his M.O. He's like a paranoid, deeply suspicious guy. He told me I went to see him. Spent crazy. I mean, he's a lovely man, but I spent a crazy afternoon with him once, in which he just talked about his life. And it's like he's. He told me when he goes to the doctor, he's like before the doctor can say anything, he's like, "Ah, 
I've seen the numbers, and I know how many of you doctors prescribe unnecessary tests just so you can line your own pockets. You try that with me. That's his opening. He didn't trust anybody, right? There's an crazy story he told me that at one point he's, he gives up on trying to convince the SEC, and he decides that the person who can really, the only person who can really investigate Bernie Madoff is the then Attorney General of New York, Elliot Spitzer. So he learns that Spitzer is going to give a speech in Boston at the Kennedy Institute. And so he has a dossier, a kind of report he's written on Markopoulos. But for complicated reasons that I couldn't quite figure out, he didn't want, to, he didn't want Spitzer to know that he was the one who had written the report. So he puts on latex gloves <laughs> and prints out the report so his fingerprints are not on it, and then puts it inside not one but two plain brown envelopes. And then he puts on some bulky clothes, and then two, not one, but two overcoats, and goes to the speech and sits in the back. And at the end, he sidles up to someone who works for the Kennedy Library, and like with the double plain brown envelope in his hands, and comes up to her and said, can you get this to Spitzer? <laughs> now, it doesn't get to Spitzer, right? <laughs> if you're working for the Kennedy Library, and some dude in two, not one, but two <laughs> overcoats wearing latex gloves <laughs> hands you not one, but two plain brown envelopes with a large suspicious package inside. Do you really just turn around and give it? No, you don't. Your job is to prevent people from giving stuff like that to Elliot Spitzer, right? When I worked at the Washington Post, we would get something like that every week. You put it straight in the garbage, right? That's what he's doing. Let me read to you uh, something from my book, which is, um, this sort of closes the deal on Macopolis. After his failures with the SEC, Markopoulos began carrying a Smith & Wesson handgun. He went to see the local police chief in a small Massachusetts town where he lived. Markopoulos told him of his work against Madoff. His life was in danger, he said, but he begged him not to put that fact in the precinct log. The police chief asked him if he wanted to wear body armor. Markopoulos declined. He had spent 17 years in the Army Reserves, and he knew something about lethal tactics. His assassins, he reasoned, would be professionals. They would give him two shots to the back of the head. Body armor wouldn't matter. <laughs> Markopoulos installed a high-tech alarm system in his house. He replaced the locks. He made sure to take a different route home every night. He checked his rearview mirror. When Madoff turned himself in, Markopoulos thought for a moment that he might finally be safe. But then he realized that he had only replaced one threat with another. Wouldn't the SEC now be after him? After all, he had years of meticulously documented evidence of, at the least, their incompetence and, at the most, their criminal complicity. He loaded up a 12-gauge shotgun and added six more rounds to the stock. He hung a bandolier of 20 extra rounds on his gun cabinet. Then he dug out his gas mask from his army days. What if they came in using tear gas? He sat in his home, terrified, guns at the ready, while the rest of us calmly went about our business. This is a guy who is simultaneously convinced that the SEC is so lame that they can't spot a Ponzi schemer in plain sight, but also so deeply diabolical 
that they had managed to put together a commando unit, <laughs> which they used to take out whistleblowers around the country that Congress and the general public has never heard of. Right? He's out of his mind. Tim, Tim Levine, the guy who I use a lot, says that the, the kind of pact, the decision we have made, the way we have evolved as human beings to implicitly trust other people um, is the right one. Um, it's because when you implicitly trust other people, you are capable of living uh, a full and uh, meaningful life. All the things we have built as human beings, this wonderful society we have constructed, is based on this fact that we trust other people. It's what allows us to communicate with other people freely and efficiently. It's what allows us to put our kids on a school bus in the morning without freaking out about who the bus driver is and where the bus driver is going, right? It's what allows us to start companies and to, to, to engage meaningfully in the community, to leave our house and walk down the street without losing our mind. I mean, I could go on and on and on. You're, you don't want to be Harry Markopoulos, right? That's not a way to live your life. What you want to be is someone who has an implicit faith in your fellow man. But that means, that means that you will pay a small price. And it's only a small price. It means that you will occasionally be deceived. Right? And what is the right response to that price that you're paying for all the wonderful things that it takes to be a human being? Right? Right? The right response is to shrug and say, okay, I'm willing to pay that price. Now, most of us don't face these kinds of elaborate choices. We're not dealing with Ponzi schemers and child molesters and Cuban spies. But on a smaller scale, I think that we deal with this trade-off all the time. And that it's important to understand that uh, all of us will at some point in our life be deceived by people. And we're not going to be able to, uh, to pick up on that deception. Not because we're doing something wrong as human beings, but because we're doing something right. Thank you. Do we sit? It's a wonderful talk. Thank you. Before we sit, <laughs> you're, you're going to send me questions on this iPad, and you're going to send some questions down the aisle um, by hand. And before we sit, I actually want to address one of the questions that we've already gotten, um, which is, why is there only one pillow on this stage? <laughs> and I'm going to check this off after you answer it. You had the pillow. And you gave it to me. Yeah. You said you yeah. don't want it. It's an act of generosity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's one pillow because I'm a little taller than Malcolm. <laughs> Welcome. This is yeah. <laughs> I've got your book and I've got some questions. All right. Well, the, the first thing I want to point out, I'm in part sitting here because this was the only seat left. You sold out. There was, there, this is the only ticket I can get. Between you and Elton John, it's a tough ticket to get around here. <laughs> so you, and another thing, you, you write in coffee shops. So you know if you move to Seattle, you have a dozen books by next year. Yeah. We've, got, we've got a few of those. 
I was. I made the rounds today. Actually, I was various spots around town. Fremont. I was in Fremont. You were in Fremont. So I read this book, mm-hmm. and I, I read the text, and I, I listened to the audio, and they were distinctly different experiences. A friend of yours once said to you, and it's a quote that I think you've used, we think with our eyes, and we feel with our, with our ears. Yeah. Say something more about that, and say something about what you did with this audio, because it was particularly powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Say more. So, I started doing this podcast, Revisions History, four years ago. And um, it profound, I had no idea. I did it as a lark. And then I got completely obsessed with it and hooked on audio. And I had no idea that audio was as powerful as it was. And that very thing that you just described is exactly what I discovered, which was the medium is incredibly emotional. It's a way to, as a way to communicate um, emotion, if I'm inside your ears, I can, it's just a different experience. And so when I was writing this book, I realized the book, this book is a deeply emotional book. Um, and right from the beginning of writing this book, I started to... I, I knew that when I did the audiobook, I wanted to do the audiobook like a podcast. Mm-hmm. So when you hear, when I interview someone, you hear, I have the tape of the interview. Um, when San, the book begins with the story of Sandra Bland being stopped on the highway, and you, we have the tape of the, you know, of the interaction she has with the officer, and you hear, you know, the whole book is an attempt to, to figure out what happened in that interaction. You hear the two of them arguing, and then... You know, Sandra Bland used to post, she had all, had all these little sort of like soliloquies she would post on YouTube. And so you hear her voice and you, you get a sense of her character in a way that you wouldn't. And so when it's just all of that, hearing it all and then hearing, there's a chapter in a book about a, uh, a guy who was the guy, the CIA guy who did the enhanced interrogation, he used to do the waterboarding and all that kind of stuff. And you hear him, it's one thing to read him, Another thing to hear and describe what he was doing. And just all of that is, it is a totally different experience to do the audiobook because it's the emotional wallop is just a lot. I actually think this book is, my personal opinion is that it's a much better audiobook than it is a written book, mm, which is not to say it's a bad book. Interesting. interesting. The audiobook, <laughs> really good. I want to come back to Sandra Bland because she's so important to the beginning and end of this book. But you start by talking about your father, and there's a question here about your father. And the question was, who was he talking to at the Mercer Hotel? Do you want to read that part of the section? So this is the very, very beginning of the book. Many years ago, when my parents came down to visit me in New York City, I decided to put them up at the Mercer Hotel. It was a bit of mischief on my part. The Mercer is chic and exclusive, the kind of pace where the famous and the fabulous stay. My parents, in particular my father, were oblivious to that kind of thing. My father did not watch television or go to the movies or listen to popular music. He would have thought People magazine was an anthropology journal. (laughs) His areas of expertise were specific, mathematics, gardening, and the Bible. I came to pick up my parents for dinner and asked my father how his day had been. Wonderful, he said. Apparently, he had spent the afternoon in conversation with a man in the lobby. This was fairly typical behavior of my father. He liked to talk to strangers. 
What did you talk about? I asked. Gardening, my father said. What was his name? Oh, I have no idea. But the whole time people were coming up to him to take pictures and have him sign little bits of paper. <laughs> If there is a Hollywood celebrity reading this who remembers chatting with a bearded Englishman long ago in the lobby of the Mercer Hotel, please contact me. <laughs> <laughs> so who was it? I don't know. So I have asked a bunch. So I've conducted, this is obsessed. My father sadly passed away two years ago, so we can no longer debrief him on this question. And he really was of no use. Um, <laughs> but there were several things I deduced. One is that the person was rough, of roughly equivalent age to my father. It was a man. It was a man so famous that in the lobby of the Mercer, so you can't go in the lobby of the Mercer if you're ordinary public. It's only for people who are staying at the Mercer. So celebrities were coming up to this celebrity and asking for pictures. Just so we're on a different level here. Like, We're up in the stratosphere. And the other thing is that my, my guess is, knowing my father, as I do, uh, as I did, uh, that he would be more inclined to talk to someone if they were also English. Because he, lower middle class English people seek out lower middle class English people with like, it's like heat seeking kind of. <laughs> they just want to get together and share class resentments about the old country. So. This narrows it considerably. Could be Mick Jagger. <laughs> But does Mick Garden? I don't think Mick Gardens. I don't, someone else suggested Michael Caine, because I think Michael Caine gardens. Keith Richards, it strike me might. I mean, I'm happy, but it, I, I mean, it's like, it's really hard. It's very, very small. Um, yeah. I've got questions. <laughs> so let's, let's go to Sandra Bland. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's, it's hard to talk about this one without being, being moved because it was a powerful thing to listen to her voice in, in real time and to hear this story. And I want you to talk some about this story, who she was and what happened. She was leaving the university where she worked mm -hmm. and she's driving along a road. And she did what many of us would do if we saw a police officer speed up behind us. She pulled over. She didn't use her turn signal. Tell the rest of that story. So then he stops and pulled up behind her yes. and says, ma'am, I stopped you because you didn't use your turning signal. I mean, it's a pretext, right? He constructed a situation in order to catch her for a trivial infraction in order to figure out whether she was up to no good. And he does that because of several things, that uh, it's a small town in Texas and she is out-of-state plates. She's from Chicago. Uh, she's a young black woman and she's driving a Hyundai. Now, no, not only to cast aspersions on Hyundais, but if she's a white woman driving a Mercedes, or even a black woman, a 60-year-old black woman driving a Mercedes, I think as well, doesn't get stopped. I think the combination of those things signals to the cop that she is other and potentially suspicious and he then decides he's going to construct a reason a pretext for pulling her over and he does and she is understandably upset at this particularly because she has um she has had she's someone who has struggled with depression she had lost a child she had thousands of dollars of unpaid 
um, parking tickets from previous, presumably similar encounters with the cops. Not unusual, by the way, for young African-Americans in coming from various parts of the country to have been routinely victimized by law enforcement who are stopping them in order to raise money for the local treasury. That is the story of Ferguson, right? Ferguson is about the cops using the African-American community as an ATM for the city treasury. Um, but she's also someone who, in her, if you can go on YouTube and you can listen to them all, she's someone who had been posting these kind of essays on YouTube, and you realize she's actually a deeply thoughtful, um, incredibly sensitive young woman who had thought a lot about race and was not, it's not like she's some kind of radical. She has this one really, and, I quote, I, and you'll hear it in the audiobook, she's talking about how she went to a high school that was deeply mixed and came away with the conclusion, with that from the conclusion that white people and black people had, we had no choice but to get along. She's not some, she's the furthest thing from a kind of fire-breathing, angry, radical. She's a sensitive, sophisticated young woman. Um, and, she's put in, and she's put in a situation, and what happens in that, after the cop stops her, is he proceeds to um, fundamentally and repeatedly misread her. Um, and that's the story of the book is the examination of all of the ways and explanations for how he misread her. And in the end, that misreading cost her her life. And you see this as a case of him misreading Sandra. Mm -hmm. But more than that, more than also a system constructed around um, uh, a system and strategy of law enforcement that has been systematically created in this country that has the, as its principal side effect, um, many, many opportunities for misreading people. I mean, it is a, it is a, yeah. it's, not a it's not a bug, it's a feature yeah. of the system of law enforcement we have created that we allow for these kinds of misreadings over and over again. Where you're headed with this in part, you say that the officer did exactly what he was trained to do. Yeah. Talk about police training mm. and how that led to this, to this incident yeah. and how that's led to other incidences around, around the country, the nature of policing. This is not a book about policing and it's not necessarily about race, but you go down this path of, of policing and police policy. Say a bit about how yeah. he was trained to do exactly what he did. So one of the most frustrating and most erroneous of conclusions drawn about that case um, and it, it was used to dismiss it. And this is part of the reason I wanted to write this book is I was tired of people um, interpreting cases like this in such a way that allowed them to dismiss them ultimately. Um, there was one line of response which said, oh, it's just a rogue cop. He's like a bad racist cop, whatever. He's not a bad racist cop. He's a cop who was doing exactly what he was trained to do. We have a philosophy of law enforcement that is practiced in many part of this, parts of this country that instructs police officers to, uh, to make up phony pretexts for pulling over people based on the flimsiest of excuses on the very, very, very slight chance that in so doing they may uncover serious criminality. This is what, I mean, in one state after another, people are pulling over thousands and thousands and thousands of motorists and in the hopes of, in the very, very, very slight statistical chance that they'll find guns or drugs. Right? It's a deliberate strategy, which makes no sense, 
because what we have been doing, the social costs of that kind of strategy are that we are alienating and frustrating and angering um, and isolating, uh, you know, 999 people for every one person that we find. Mm -hmm. So this is the philosophy of policing in which the officer, in this case, Brian Insignia, was instructed. He was, if you look, and you can, I, I got a list of every police stop he made in his nine months on the course, on the force, and this is what he did every day. He didn't pick on Sandra Bland. No, this was a guy who day in, day out, hour in, hour out, stopped countless people on the most flimsiest of pretexts. In fact, in the hour before he stopped Sandra Bland, I think he stopped 300 people on equally, I'm sorry for the use of the word, bullshit grounds. Like, it's really, really crucial to understand this is about a system of policing, not about a one-off bad officer. So that explains because there, there is a question here that comes up um, a lot in this. Why didn't you use the research on implicit bias here? You didn't go to a racial analysis. Mm -hmm. Why not? Well, many reasons. Uh, so I've written many, 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 many times about race in my uh, life, career. Um, and if I had to be honest, I would say that I have become increasingly disillusioned about the value of uh, strictly racial analysis of American problems. Not because it is not inaccurate, it's totally accurate. A huge number of American problems are about race. But I'm convinced it doesn't get us anywhere. Um, and I, the, the turning point for me, and I actually recently tweet, tweeted out a copy of this. I read a paper a couple years ago by an African-American historian called Charles Payne, which so profoundly radicalized me in this question. It's a, an essay called uh, The Whole United States is Southern, and it, which is a, something that George Wallace famously said it when he was governor of Alabama in the late 60s. And the essay is all about this fact that the project of Southern white segregationists during the Civil Rights era, their goal was to personalize the debate about race. What they wanted to do was to reduce racial, the racial issue to a matter of personal conduct so that it would be about white people had to be nice to black people. They had to be polite to them. They had to welcome them into their homes. They had to, and if only they did that, that would resolve America's racial issue. And in so doing, by focusing the debate on matters of personal conduct, what they hoped to do was to avoid the consideration of structural issues. Of, the, of voter suppression, of gerrymandering, of segregation, of redlining, of all the kinds of ways in which the system, um, they didn't want to talk about that. They wanted to get, get America to get distracted and talk entirely about how people, white people and black people behave around each other. And the phrase, the whole United States is Southern, was Paine's way of saying, that point of view won. They totally won. That's what we do now. I mean, I'm Canadian. The last couple of weeks have been consumed with a debate about whether the governor of the prime minister of Canada should resign because 20 years ago he wore brown face to a party. I will point out that this is the same man who, over the last couple of years, has admitted, has single-handedly been the reason why Canada has admitted more refugees than at any other time in its recent history. That is his record at a time when, I will point out, this country has had an utterly disgraceful record on this front. 
That's what he stands for, right? So, and what are we talking about? We're not talking about his attempt to address broad structural problems in the world where there are people out there who are suffering and need a home. No, we're distracted by something really dumb he did 20 years ago at a party. And when we spend weeks talking about whether this man who has affected the lives of thousands of refugees should resign over something dumb he did at a party 20 years ago, the Southerners from the 60s have won. That's Payne's point, right? They win when you talk about blackface instead of refugees. And I think that is a, I feel incredibly passionately about this. We spent more time talking about, you know, Ralph Northern's blackface in Virginia than we did talking about gerrymandering and voter suppression in North Carolina and Georgia. And that has real consequences, right? So when it came to this, I was like, I don't want to talk about whether the cop in this case was, had like, you know, racist thoughts in his heart. First of all, I don't know. And secondly, I'm sick of us taking that perspective and using it as a way to say, well, okay, let's just have better cops next time we're done, right? It's time we, we, it's, it's time we reverted back to some consideration of these issues on a, on a broader institutional and structural level. There's a question here that inquiring minds want to know, David, and about 34 other people want to know the answer to this question. <laughs> of the many different aspects of human behavior you have studied, yeah. which behavior explains the election of Donald Trump? <laughs> I mean, you've got a book about truth-telling and you don't talk about Donald Trump. You, you no, knew it was coming, right? You know? I have written the only book published in 2019 that does not have the word Trump in it. Um, do I really... Can I dodge this question? I don't want to make everything... I'm sick of everything being about... You know, he would be so happy if he knew that this discussion had veered from other topics to him. I don't want to give him that satisfaction. Okay, so you're going to avoid the Trump question. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take you to a, a question that's rather sensitive in this town. Mm -hmm. um, professional basketball. Yeah. Uh, I, we don't have a team anymore, so be mm -hmm. gentle. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the, star, the, the storm, the storm. <laughs> Women's basketball team. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, just, I just want to point out the look on your face when they caught me in that one. You seem to enjoy that thoroughly. <laughs> I'm going somewhere it. with this question. <laughs> yeah, you threw me right <laughs> under the bus. So here, um, you're a runner, uh -huh. and so am I. Uh -huh. I actually am not. I just lied, but that's <laughs> never mind. I'm not a runner. I hate running. Um, you challenged LeBron James to a mile race. I did. Sports Illustrated picked up on this, mm -hmm. and they ran a poll. 52% of the people thought that you would beat LeBron James. Yeah. Um, and frankly, I voted for you too. What were you thinking? What, what, what was that I, about? What were you... I, did, I didn't vote for myself. I think LeBron wins. 
Think about it. This whole thing came up because runners are obsessed. No one else is obsessed with this except for people in the very, um, you know, in the running world. There was a video that LeBron put out, which was he was in a gym running from one end to the next, and then someone would throw him an alley-oop, he would dunk, run to the other end. Someone would throw him an alley-oop, he would dunk, he'd run to the other end. And it just kept on going. And if you're a runner, you look at that and you're like, holy mackerel, that's the most amazing interval workout I've ever seen. And the minute I saw that, I was like, oh, that dude can run a 4.30 mile, like easy. And um, so I thought, how much fun would it be to, ch- since he's so good, why don't I challenge him? <laughs> and even in getting, you know, thoroughly waxed by LeBron, I'll have the privilege of losing to one of the world's greatest athletes. Um, so uh, I challenged him, and he's been ducking me. <laughs> I've gone... I've gone to his agents, I went to Nike, I went, I mean, I literally, I tried really, really hard to get LeBron, and he, like, not, no answer. I said, name the place, name the time, all money to charity, nothing. So now my new idea is, I was like, all right, how about our moms go at it? <laughs> now, my mom, I will say, uh, Joyce, uh, 89 years old, but she has a walker, and I think she should be allowed to use her walker. <laughs> But she can get some serious velocity with that thing. <laughs> so among the questions that you're, you're ducking, mm-hmm. it, you've been asked, uh, and I know that you're not going to answer this, but I'm going to yeah. ask, ask you anyway. Um, what's your LSAT score? Yeah. And there's a reason why you're not going to answer that question, because you were asked backstage by a handful of lawyers that were yeah. waiting anxiously to find out what your LSAT score is. Tell us about why you took the LSAT, how yeah. you prepared for the LSAT, and what happened along what the happened? way. Yeah. Well, I decided for my podcast, Revisionist History, to do, for some reason, I forget why, I decided that I would challenge my assistant, Camille, who's 24, uh, to the LSAT. So we both, <laughs> we both started studying and got tutors and took it very seriously. And we went mano a mano. And then I got, after I took it, I was like amazed. I didn't understand this whole notion that, like I ran out of time on numerous of the sections, which struck me as very odd because it's a test to prepare you to be a lawyer. And as far as I can tell, lawyers are people who want to take as long as possible (laughs) on things. I mean, they literally, they build by the hour. Like all of the incentive structure is about being super thoughtful and careful and, you know, deliberate. And yet, the test to enter the profession has places such, you get 35 minutes to answer 30 questions. It's absurd. And all of the, when I did my tutoring, the, all the tutoring was about how to take shortcuts. And I was told to get the gist of the paragraphs that you read, but not try to understand them, which struck me as crazy talk (laughs) for selection into the legal profession. So I've never encountered some, such an utter disconnect between the things that they're testing for and the things they actually want you to be. Anyway, so super weird. Camille and I took the test and uh, we vowed we would not reveal our scores for self-preservation reasons. (laughs) Um, but you have to listen to the podcast to know what happened. Otherwise, it's, uh, the, 
it's episode one and two in season four of Revisionist History. I'm not, I'm not, uh, not, not revealing anymore. I don't want to reduce your incentive to listen to it. <laughs> Speaking of the podcast, you and your friend... Actually, I will say one thing. Oh, please. Everyone I asked when I was doing my tutoring, I'd always ask, do you think I have a chance against Camille? And they would just burst out laughing. <laughs> <laughs> you and your friend Jacob Weisberg started Pushkin Industries. Mm -hmm. the, the question, um, why Pushkin? But I want to add to that question. You, have a, you had a dog named Pushkin. Yeah. That's not that unusual. You had an apartment named Pushkin. Yeah. You had a dog named Tolstoy? Also, yeah. And you had a pet named Weisberg? No, not a pet named Weisberg. Not a, not a pet, but... No, no. My father, who, as I've already said, stated is, was a somewhat eccentric Englishman, thought everything in his life should be named. He took this very, very seriously. His rototiller had a name. His, like, cars had names. Houses had names. And dogs, he loved dogs. And it, it really was important to him that the dog have a name with some substance. So our, he decided that all of our dogs, for reasons I don't know why, all of our dogs were named after famous Russians. So we had Tolstoy, Chekhov, Pushkin, Spassky. Uh, I've forgotten some of the other ones. There were some unfortunate ones. Um, he also named, famously, we had sheep, and he would name them... During the Gulf War, we had sheep, and he named the sheep Bush, <laughs> Cheney, <laughs> Schwarzkopf, and then we had one, one black sheep that he named Colin Powell. I, I got, <laughs> my father really did, because, you know, he's my mother's cousin. My father had a very active sense of humor. Anyway, I loved the name Pushkin so much that I... Then I would refer to, first I referred to my apartment as Pushkin, just because it's easier to say, I'll meet you at Pushkin than I'll meet you at my apartment. And then I started a company with Jacob, and I wanted to call the company Gramsci, just because, why not? And I had a friend do a caricature of Gramsci that was super brilliant, and I thought, this will be our logo. And then I ran the name Gramsci past Jacob. And Jacob was like, I'm not calling company Gramsci. Why would I call my company after a kind of semi-obscure late 19th century Marxist philosopher. I was like, all right, you got a point. So then he said, I want to call it Pushkin. But I had already called my own personal, like, you know, I'm a writer, so we all have our escort. I call that Pushkin as well. So there's so many Pushkins in my life now. It's overwhelming. But I couldn't stop the Pushkin parade. And if you go on our, our, our logo is just a caricature of Pushkin. Um, who, you know, is an enormously interesting fellow. Mm -hmm. um, and also, like me, he's mixed race, right? He's like half, is he half or a quarter Ethiopian? He's part black. I think he's part black. He's yeah, half black. He is, yeah. yeah. So, there you go. It's necessary for us to default to truth, mm -hmm. you say. Mm -hmm. um, what if we don't? Well, we end up like Macropolis. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, I really, really th think this is an important point that um, the correct, like I said, like I said when I was speaking, the correct response to being deceived is not to turn ourselves into paranoid, um, suspicious uh, trolls. Um, that, you know, 
we have to learn to kind of accept the fact that deception is the price of being human. Um, and we can build intelligent structures to limit the possibility of deception, but you can never, you can't create a world, um, the only way to create a world that is good at detecting liars is to create a world that you don't actually want to live in. Um, and I, I think that's a, and I, I think in many cases what we've done, like my argument against policing in this country is that what we've done with police, what we've done, what we've done in a, in a, in a, by misunderstanding crime and how it operates, we've thought that the only way we could fight crime is to turn police officers into versions of Harry Markopoulos, right? That's what Brian Insinia was, the cop who stopped Sandra Bland, someone who was taught to overcome his natural impulse to trust. He was taught that if you're going to do this job, you have to suspect everyone. And that is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing to teach police officers to believe. I work, at a yes. I work at a university. You have some things to say about life at the university. Um, first, it's interesting, you, you talk about um, Amanda Knox, and you feel like we misread Amanda Knox. Yeah. Talk about that. Well, that's a... It's funny, because I... I had... I, uh, I had an email exchange with Amanda Knox. After she read my book, because I have a chapter on her, and gave an incredibly thoughtful um, sort of, critique is too strong a word, because she wasn't. Um, so I'm, I'm offering, I will say, I will preface what I'm saying um, with the statement that there are other ways to interpret what happened to her. And she has her own, she now has a slightly, slightly different interpretation than me. Um, and uh, so that being said, um, one of the things that Tim Levine, this this uh, researcher whose work I use a lot in this book, one of the things he argues is that um, we're not, when we're fooled by people who are liars, there's a pattern to who, the people that deceive us, that we're actually really good at spotting certain kinds of, uh, we're, really, we're actually really good at decoding certain kinds of people. Um, people who are what he calls matched, we do know whether they're lying or telling the truth. A matched person is someone whose internal um, emotional states are clearly and, um, and accurately represented on their face. So the matched liar is someone who got up here and says, you know, tells a lie, and they're stammering, and they're red in the face, and they're sweating profusely, and they're like looking away, and you're like, hey, you're lying, right? That's matched. Unmatched person is someone who exhibits behaviors that are not congruent with the way they feel, or at least congruent with our stereotype of the way people should behave in a certain situation. And unmatched people are really hard for us. They're, they're the people who we wrongfully convict. They're the people who we unfairly turn our backs on. They're the people... Bernie Madoff is unmatched. Mismatched, we call mismatched. Bernie Madoff is a deeply dishonest sociopath who resembles an honest man, right? And the argument of that chapter is that Amanda Knox is mismatched. She's an innocent person who does not behave in the way that the Italian police and the Italian public and the British tabloid press think an innocent pe person ought to behave in, the, in response to her roommate being murdered. And, on the ba and that literally, my argument is, that, ex that explains 90% of why she was wrongfully convicted, that um, 
It's just a kind of mismatch. She's just like, they had this weird, specific, culturally specific notion of what innocence and distress looked like, and she didn't match it. Now, as I said, Amanda Knox will give you a slightly different interpretation that I think is also worthy um, of consideration. Um, I don't know if she's here tonight, but if she, anyway. But I mean, that's a, I think there, that she is an example of someone. You can use, I think, fruitfully examine her case in that way. Um, We've got time for a couple more questions. I can't help but ask about college campuses and drinking. Yeah. That happens. Yeah. <laughs> we, we thought this was a problem of disinhibition. Yeah. That when students drink, or any of us drink, that drums up liquid courage. Mm -hmm. That's not the case in, in your mind. It's something else. It's, yeah. it's myopia. Talk, yeah. about, talk about that for me. So one of the things that's happened in uh, alcohol research in the last generation is that we have, there's been a dramatic shift in our understanding of what inebriation is. And this is the work um, that was done by uh, uh, Steele. Claude Steele. Claude, Claude Steele at Stanford. It's really brilliant. Uh, he and another guy, some really brilliant papers in which they argue that in, inebriation, drunkenness, is not what we think it is, which is disinhibition. It is, in fact, myopia. Now, that sounds like hair-splitting. It's not. Disinhibition is where you believe that when you drink, what it does is it peels away kind of superficial layers and reveals your kind of essential self, in vino veritas, right? How many times have we said that so-and-so was really drunk and they finally told me this thing, and we... We cherish the thing they told us when they were drunk because we think, you know, they had, they were finally, we were finally getting at the heart of the story, right? I hate my wife, right? When I'm four drinks in, and you're like, oh my God, Malcolm really hates his wife, right? That's what you think. <laughs> Steele comes along and says that's not what alcohol is at all. It's, it's actually something very, very different. What drinking does is it shuts down your higher cognitive processes so that all you have, all you're left with is the, is the thing immediately in front of your face. You are totally at the mercy of your environment, and you can no longer do any kind of thinking about tomorrow or any kind of thinking about the world outside of the thing in front of your face. And the reason, so that's myopia. And what that's, that's significant because your myopic self is not your true self, right? Yes. The way we construct our true selves is by considering more than just the person in front of us and is by qualifying our behavior with a thought about what will happen tomorrow and next week. Being a good parent is all about that, right? All you're thinking about is not just right now, but about the consequences of what you... That is your real parent self. If I reduce you to someone who only responds to what your child is doing in that very moment, that is a caricature. That's not, to, not even a caricature. That is another person entirely, right? When your child acts out, you don't hit your child. Why? Because you're not, you may want to in that moment, but you stop yourself and you think that is a terrible, horrible thing to do with consequences, blah, 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 blah. You're thinking about all kinds of things other than your immediate emotional response to the situation. So drinking turns us into that person who is at the mercy of the here and now. And that is not us, right? So now think about this in the context of two people at a party having a conversation where both of them are drunk out of their minds. Now, we assume that, you know, we, we expect them to behave in accordance with our moral notions of behavior between 
you know, in a romantic context, that you only proceed with sexual activity when there is consent. How is there consent, right, when someone is drunk out of their minds? Consent assumes that the person consenting is themselves. But when I'm wasted, I'm not myself, right? So, like, you can't discuss. I, I went around before when I started my book, I went around to talk to all these people about the campus sexual self problem because it's out of control, as you would know, right? That's the world you're living in. And every one of them said the same thing, which is, well, you can't talk about this problem unless you talk about alcohol. And they weren't saying it's solely about alcohol. They were just saying, look, that alcohol is this, it's the, it is the, it is the engine of this problem. Um, and in, when you look at these cases, they are almost without exception cases that involve two people who are drunk out of their minds. Um, and unless you, unless you do something about alcohol, you cannot, you cannot resolve this issue. And that's what that chapter is about. We're running a little bit late. I want to check. Are you all okay for a couple more minutes and one more question? Okay. Go Storm, also. I want to just say that. <laughs> Love that team. <laughs> um, to, to read this book, it, it, some read it as, as a bit depressing. You take us through Sandra Bland, Sylvia Plath, and Sexton. Amanda Knox, Bertie Madoff, Brock Turner. But yet the stories I, I find most compelling, really compelling, are about the influence of your mother and your father. And your father is someone who did not always default to truth, particularly when it came to counting clerks when they were... Oh. Yeah, you have to tell that story because there's, there's hope in that story through, through your father who, who would see something wrong yeah. and would call it out. You have to tell that story. Oh, well, this is an idiosyncrasy of my father, but you have to understand the spirit in which he did it. My father was deeply mischievous, and he loved nothing more than kind of um, showing up uh, authority or systems that he thought to be flawed. And so, and he was also a mathematician. Um, and so back in the day before bar, barcodes, you would go to the grocery store and you would have like 100 items and then, and the cashier would ring them up one by one on the cash register, right? So he would count along with the cash register because he could, he was a math guy. And then, but only if he was undercharged, not if he was overcharged, only if he was undercharged, he would then very gently say it at the end, you know, I actually owe you another dollar seventy-five, <laughs> and he would be enormously pleased with the fact that he had, that he had, he had like subverted the the supermarket hierarchy. <laughs> but it was not a to call him a default to truther was is 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 slightly inaccurate. It was more his sort of fundamental sense of of uh, it was his it was his wry British sense of humor combined with his high-end math skills. How have your mother and father shaped you as a, as a writer? Well, I like to think that there's still an element of my father's mischief in me. Uh, my podcast is quite mischievous. Um, my writing, perhaps less so. Um, but my mother is uh, someone who speaks... My mother is a, uh, someone who uh, is extraordinarily... Um, uh, plain-spoken, articulate, 
clear, and also she's a woman of very, very few words. Um, and so she set a standard for, um, for, for, uh, for communication, for a kind of um, powerful, direct communication that has never left me. Um, to this day, I have the only mom in the world who I talked to her today, who, when you're having a conversation with her, she's always the first one off the phone. She was like, she will dismiss me at a certain point. <laughs> she was like, I have said my piece. I have things to do. She's 89. What is she doing? <laughs> she was like, I have things to do. Uh, I will speak to you, you know, in due course. And then she, she, always, she always signs off with the same phrase. She goes, goody good, hangs up. <laughs> I think we've reached the end. Malcolm, we love your, we love your podcast. Thank you. It was an honor to host Malcolm Gladwell in 2019 and to bring him back to the podcast today. If you enjoyed listening, we welcome you to join us for our 35th anniversary season, featuring authors like Ruth Ozeki, Masha Gessen, and Louise Penny. Tickets and subscriptions are available at lectures.org. Thank you to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board and community, and thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, rate and review us five stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.